0: Well, I have uh, some good news and some bad news. So I always start off with the good news. Good news is that Jesus Christ is alive (laughs) and that he is seated on his throne. The bad news is that for the next hour or so, you guys have to look at me because I don't have a PowerPoint. So... uh, Guys can be charmed by my little Charmander here if you guys get bored of looking at me. But uh, I really just wanted to uh, first off just thank uh, Pastor Roger and uh, Pastor Ray for the opportunity um, to serve you guys just through uh, the ministering of the Word. It's it's really just a, a privilege to be able to participate in the disciple the discipling of uh, this fellowship group. And um, so, yeah, thank you guys for that. Uh, Let us go ahead and open up our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, um, we just want to thank you for uh, bringing us through this week. Uh, We thank you for all you're doing in the world. And um, Father, we ask that in this time, that as we um, consider this topic about our minds, that you'll ready our minds to receive the instructions that are in your word. And um, God, whatever is of you, we ask that you would uh, plant it into our hearts. And God, whatever is not of you, whatever is wrong, may it be forgotten. Uh, We thank you, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all right. So uh, the theme of our summer series is stewardship. And uh, just so we're on the same page, stewardship is the act of managing something or taking care of something. Such an act also entails the proper use or the profitable use of a particular asset. And this aspect of putting something to proper use or using something in a profitable way is typically what we have in mind when we speak about stewardship. If you have money, you spend it. If you have a skill, you employ it. But when it comes to the idea of stewardship, again, we're not primarily concerned with whether one uses a particular thing. That much is assumed. The primary concern is with how that thing is used. Is it used properly? Is it used in a profitable way? How are we stewarding, how are we managing that particular thing? Now, when it, when we're going, when, if we're going to steward anything well, if we're going to use anything in a profitable way, then we've got to know what that particular thing is for. What is it meant for? What goal is it meant to accomplish? What is the purpose of that particular thing? If I took out a dollar bill and started taking notes on it like scratch paper, that would suggest that I don't really know what that dollar bill is for. If I put a fork into an outlet, that would suggest that I don't know what either of those things are for, and I would be shocked with discovery. Stewardship entails the proper use or the profitable use of a particular asset. And in order to steward anything well, we need to know what what that particular thing is for. You guys following me so far? Now, the topic for tonight is the stewardship of the mind. The stewardship of the mind. And in our time tonight, we'll be guided by three considerations as it pertains to the stewarding of the mind. First, we'll consider the nature of the mind. What is the mind? What does the Bible, how does the Bible talk about the mind? And what can we glean from scripture concerning its purpose? Again, if we want to steward our minds well, we need to review what we're actually stewarding. Secondly, we'll consider the abuse of the mind. Where did this abuse start? And what were the outcomes of this abuse? And then lastly, we'll consider the purpose of the mind. Here, we can hopefully learn from the mistakes of the past and consider how we can move forward. So, let's begin our time with the nature of the mind. What is the mind? Is it merely an amalgamation of neurons firing off in that restless muscle of the skull? Just the result of biological processes fizzing like bubbles in a can of soda? Is that all that we can say about the mind? Just the result of chemical reactions? Sure, the mind involves the brain. And sure, it involves biological processes. But if that's all we said about the mind, then we haven't said what it is. we've only described what it consists of. Surely, the mind is more than biology in the brain. The Bible suggests the mind is a very vital aspect of the person. In short, the mind is <clears throat> it is what every truth, every promise, every command of scripture appeals to. If you know something about God, that knowledge resides in the mind. If you believe anything about God, that belief resides in the mind. A good definition for the mind can be taken from the Oxford Dictionary. It says that the mind is the faculty of consciousness and thought. It is the part of you that enables you to not only be aware of yourself, but of others and of your surroundings. It is the part of you that acquires knowledge, the part of you that thinks, remembers, intends, and decides. In the Bible, the heart is often referred to as an aspect of the mind. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. From this, we could see that the heart plans. The heart makes determinations. But we know that the plans and determinations are attributes of the mind. It is with your mind that you make plans. It is with your mind that you determine your course of action. So it would seem that when the author used the word heart, he was referring to an aspect of the mind. In Psalm 139, verse 23 through 24, David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The parallel structure of Hebrew poetry suggests that the thoughts of David were in the heart that needed to be searched. In essence, his heart was synonymous with his thoughts. This was a poetic device that rephrased certain realities for an effect. And when it comes to Hebrew poetry, it doesn't rhyme with sounds, but with ideas. And so again, we see another example of how the heart was referred to as an aspect of the mind. One more example. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It tells us that if you confess with your heart, or I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The literal heart is just an organ, right? An organ that circulates blood throughout our body. It doesn't know anything. It doesn't believe anything. It doesn't feel anything, if you're feeling something in your heart, then you might want to consult a healthcare provider. But when Paul is talking about the heart believing, again, he's referring to an aspect of the mind. Right? So I trust that I don't need to belabor this too much, right? I'm just, just want to address it quickly because the, the Bible does use the words heart and mind interchangeably. But like I said before, The mind is a vital part of who you are because it's the core and truest part of you, right? It's the purest part of the person. And I'm not talking about morally pure, I'm saying that it's you without dilution, right? The unadulterated, unfiltered you. That's what your mind is. Proverbs 27, verse 19 says, As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. The mind of a person, the thoughts of a person, the heart of a person reflects the person as they actually are. Your mind reveals your true character and your thoughts are just samples of what you're actually made of. And though we can hide our thoughts from one another, thank God, the Bible tells us that the mind is a part of us that, before the eyes of God, cannot be hidden behind fig leaf or bush. Proverbs 15:11 asserts that Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? Sheol and Abaddon are realms of the dead, and they are inaccessible to the living. Apart from God's revelation, man has no knowledge of these realms. The only way a person can learn more about these places is through firsthand experience, AKA death. But nobody has ever gone there and come back to tell us what it's like. But what we read is that before God, these places are an open book, these realms are in clear view. And in the case of human hearts, the writer argues from the greater to the lesser. If these inaccessible realms are open before the eyes of God, how much more the hearts of man. And what we get from this is that before the eyes of God, our mind is naked and exposed. He doesn't just see everything that we do on the outside. He knows what we're actually like. Not just behind closed doors, but behind the eyes and in between the ears. God knows our minds and He knows how we think. And that deserves a Selah, right? Let that sink in your ears for a second. Your work day today, God knows those thoughts that you had. That deserves some reflection. Now, what is the purpose of the mind? Does the Bible give any clues to this question? I'm glad you asked. When we ask about the purpose of the mind, we're essentially asking why God made it. And when it comes to God's making of things, the book of Genesis is usually the book we want to go to. In Genesis chapter 2, we get a recapitulation of part of the creation narrative a retelling of how God made the first man. Man was formed from the dust of the earth, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it was then that the man became a living being, a living soul. And the man was placed in the garden where he was employed to cultivate and guard those sacred grounds. And in verse 16 and 17, we read this. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when we read this, it's it's easy to overlook the embedded realities of the text. In this exchange, there's a lot going on here. A lot of things that will give us clues into this question of the purpose of the mind. And the first thing that we see here in the text is that God addresses man verbally. We're told that God commanded the man. He spoke to the man. This doesn't just suggest that God spoke in a language that Adam understood. But the more basic reality is that God transmitted information to Adam's mind. There was something that God wanted. There was a will that God had for the man. And so he informed the man. And the command that God gave was was a complex one, right? It included what the man was permitted to do, what the man was prohibited from doing, and consequences for disobedience. That's complex. That's not a command that you could give to a dog, right? At least not successfully. You can't make a dog understand what it can do, what it can't do, and consequences for disobedience. Not verbally, not in one statement, but God issued this command to Adam. The second thing that we see is that Adam did understand. And this is related to the first observation. The all-knowing, all-wise creator communicated with Adam because he knew Adam would understand Otherwise, God wouldn't have spoken to Adam. He wouldn't have communicated his will to the man if he didn't think it would be received and understood. But if we read on in Genesis chapter 3, the text suggests that Adam understood the command well enough to communicate it to his wife. You guys following me? The last observation we can make is that Adam had a choice to make. Adam had a choice to make. Adam had to decide whether he would abide by the command of God or not. This tells us that God wasn't just typing a command into a computer. God didn't intend for obedience to be an automated response, some sort of involuntary response from an unthinking creature. No, God expects obedience, but he wanted to be an act of the creature's own will and volition. Obedience was meant to be an informed, personal response. And so, with all that being said, we can deduce God's purpose of the mind. God created the mind of man primarily so that as conscious, thinking beings we would come to know, understand, and choose to do the will of God. There are many other things that God has created our minds to do. But if you understand what the will of God entails, then you would see that his will is all-encompassing. The primary purpose of the mind is that you and I will know, understand, and choose to do the will of God. But we know that that isn't what we do with our minds, is it? Though we were made to know God, though eternal life is to know God, though our minds were made to know, understand, and do God's will, that's not what characterizes the human race, is it? This brings us to our next consideration, the abuse of the mind. When did this abuse start? What caused the deviant use of the mind? For those of us familiar with the biblical narrative, we know that it all started in the garden. It all started with that fateful encounter between the first woman and that serpent. From this encounter, we learned that through the mind, mankind was led astray. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 we read that the serpent said this to the woman. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and get this, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack in that passage, but the point I want to draw our attention to is the role that the mind played in this exchange. As we've been saying, the purpose of the woman's mind was being fulfilled up to this point. She was informed about the will of God. She apparently understood the will of God. And up to this point, she was doing the will of God. She knew that she was permitted to eat from any tree in the garden, every single tree with the exception of one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And before this day, The woman never considered eating from this tree. She was content with the law of the land as it was. But then the serpent came along and marketed an alternative that she had not considered. He essentially said, Hey, you know that tree over there? Tree in the midst? That tree that God told you that you can't have and that you can't eat from? Guess what? He's holding out on you. You see... Right now, your judgment of good and evil is dependent on Him. But if you took from that tree, you could judge for yourself. Your eyes will be opened, and you can be an independent woman making your own decisions. Don't be content under that God repressiveness. Take from the tree and liberate your mind. Think for yourself and the seed was planted in her mind. The tree that she knew to be off-limits suddenly had a different appeal to it. If she ate its fruit, she could become wise. She could experience independent judgment. She could think for herself. This is how mankind was led astray through the mind. It started with deception. It started with the distortion of truth, which gave birth to a desire for wisdom. A desire for wisdom apart from and in rebellion against the rule and reign of God. And to a greater or lesser extent, this has been the human experience ever since. And since then, mankind has expressed rebellion with his mind. Chief example of this can be found in Genesis chapter 11, where we read of a unified humanity, a humanity of one language, a humanity of one purpose. And starting in verse 1, it reads, The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold... Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, if you didn't read Genesis up to this point, you might not understand why God did this, right? Without understanding the the context, God's actions kind of read like cosmic bullying. Right? Like It's kind of like God is just messing up their hair because he can. But if you read the, from the beginning up to this point, you know that that's not the case. You see, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family had just left the ark. After the waters of the global flood had receded, the earth was cleansed and the Noahic family would be the ones to repopulate the earth. In fact, we find that this is exactly what God had in mind. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we read that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At this point, there was no other people on planet earth, right? No other humans. And at that time, that is what God wanted. But through the sons of Noah, it was God's will for humanity to fill, to populate, to spread throughout the whole earth. Not just in the coastal regions where it's mild and temperate, but everywhere on earth. Everywhere on earth where life could be sustained, everywhere on earth that's habitable. That's where God wanted humans to be. And in order for that to happen, they needed to spread out. Now, when we look back at the building project of Genesis chapter 11, what motive do Did they express at the end of verse 4? They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest, motive, we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were trying to avoid dispersion, they wanted to stay put. They didn't want to spread out. And so they put their minds together and devised a plan. And that plan was starting to materialize in the Tower of Babel. Again, this is an example of how a man uses his mind to defy God. Because his mind is darkened and seeks wisdom apart from and in rebellion against his maker, he does not understand the value and benefit of God's rule. Instead, he is blinded by pride and seeks to live as if there is no God. And that leads to another effect of the fall. Mankind is ungodly in the mind. David, speaking about the ungodly, said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Wouldn't that be funny? right? Like if we... uh, gave a greeting card to an atheist on April 1st handed it to one of your favorite atheists he opens it and it says the fool says in his heart there is no god right. oh it's funny to me sorry okay don't do that don't do that but in our day to be called a fool is more so of a pejorative right it's it's an insult of one's intelligence However, in the Bible, foolishness was a moral quality. And it was applied chiefly to people who thought like the man who says in his heart, there is no God. You see, the fool is not necessarily ignorant, though he may be at times. But more often than not, fools know some things. In fact, they know a lot of things. They might even know more than you. When David spoke about the fool, he spoke about a man who was informed. And this this fool is even informed about God. But what made the man foolish was what he did with the information in his mind. He took his thoughts about God and filed it in the junk mail folder. And though he knows that God exists, he lives as if he doesn't. He tells himself, he thinks within his mind, there is no God. And since the fall, this has characterized the mentality of the human race. In one way or another, man thinks and lives as if there is no God. And this is the heart of ungodliness. It isn't primarily the thief or the rapist. It's the person who walks around with little to no thought or awareness of God. And to be clear, ungodliness doesn't require atheism. Ungodliness doesn't require the denial of God's existence. All it takes is for us to talk to our spouse or our loved ones as if God doesn't hear. All it takes is for us to behave in private as if God doesn't see. All it takes is for us to think about one another as if God doesn't know. That's all it takes. And when we live like that, we become the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Moving on, the Bible also tells us that mankind has a depraved mind. The Apostle Paul understood this well, and he crystallizes it for us in his letter to the Romans. In the first chapter, starting in verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, Animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you've been in church for a while, then you've probably heard the word depravity thrown around a few times. In theological terms, we speak about the depravity of man or total depravity, the T the in the acrostic tulip. And generally, we get the sense that this is not a good thing. But when we speak about depravity, we're actually referring to something that's corrupted, something that's perverted and twisted, something that's jacked up. It's damaged goods, something that is in a state of disrepair. If you've ever had a corrupt file on your computer, then you can get the sense of what we're getting at here. The file no longer works properly, and sometimes it exhibits odd behavior. That's what has happened to the human mind. It is morally corrupt, and it is intellectually corrupt. And Paul tells us why. It starts with the suppression of truth. What truth? Paul tells us that the truth here is what may be known about God. This truth about God is something that Paul says is plain and perceivable to every human being. Regardless of what a person says, he and she knows that there is a God. He may not know God to be triune. He may not know God to be saviour. But each person knows that there is a God. And Paul bases this assertion on the fact that God has made everything in such a way to display his handiwork. This is why the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. When God created all things, he didn't wear any gloves. He left evidence of his handiwork on every square inch of creation. Everything is branded by God. He's got his name all over everything. And Paul tells us that part of the intention of doing this was so that his invisible qualities and divine nature will be clearly perceived. He left evidence so that when we observe the metamorphosis of a butterfly, when we see the innumerable stars that fill the universe, when we discover the information encoded in every strand of DNA, we would understand that he did it. And we would conclude that he's awesome and that he's worth drawing near to. Yet, in man's fallen state, he does not prefer God. Man in his fallen state does not wish to think about God. And this is because men and women in their fallen state do not desire God. Due to the fall, men and women are ungodly, regardless of how good and how moral they appear to be. I know a lot of unbelievers, and I'm sure you do too. And a lot of these people that we know would not call themselves Christians. And yet, many of them are incredibly generous. I know many of them to be good fathers and and good mothers. Many of them abide by many of the moral standards that we abide by. And in that sense, we could say that they're fairly good people. But when you mention the idea of God, you can sense that you're just invoking something that they just don't want to talk about. They might give an obligatory nod just to please you. But inside, they just don't want to go there. Why is that? It's because they don't prefer God. They don't desire God. Deep down inside, they find the thought of God to be unsavory. They find God to be intolerable. And so they do what they can to put them out of view. And Paul calls this the suppression of truth. It is the idea of holding something down. A familiar analogy is that of holding a beach ball underwater. You might manage to get that ball under the water, but it takes effort to keep it down there. This is how man suppresses the truth about God. They hold the truth down. They deny the truth about God so as to keep it from influencing their mind and their conscience. They refuse to give credence to existence. They will not entertain the thought of God as creator because the implications are way too costly. If they grant that there is a God, then they might actually have to apply some ethics to their sexual practice. If they grant that there is a God then they might actually have to apply some ethics to their experimentation or their business practice or what have you. Right? If they grant that there is a God, then they might actually have to stop butchering children in the the womb. Acknowledging God will disrupt man's godless pursuits. And this is why God has been banished from the classrooms. This is why God has been banished from the media. This is why God has been banished from academia. It isn't because the reality of God is inferior to scientific research, it's because sinful man has deemed the idea of God to be so. As we saw in the garden, the first sin involved the desire to obtain wisdom apart from and in rebellion against God. And what we're seeing in our modern day is a case in point to this fact. Man suppresses the truth about God. They neither honor him as God nor give thanks to him. And as a result, God gives us over to the defectiveness of our own mind. And that defectiveness, that corruption, that depravity just gets worse and worse and worse. To a point where people start to think that it's actually preferable to mutilate themselves in order to identify with the figments of their own imagination. To a point where we think that men can have babies While mothers should be called birthing people. Imagine that. Instead of happy Mother's Day, happy birthing people's day. We are so lost that we're hesitant to even define what a woman is. And this is what happens when we suppress the truth about God. This is what happens when we suppress obvious realities. The intellect, it just gets glitchy and our judgment is impaired. And this is likely what Paul had in mind when he said that we became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. When we say that mankind has a depraved mind, this is what we're talking about. And because this is the case, the mind is the source of all of our evil. There was a time when Jesus was confronted about his disciples. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees wanted to know why his disciples ate with unclean hands. The assumption behind this concern was that Jesus' disciples were defiling themselves by not washing their hands before eating. While it was true that the priests were required to wash themselves before uh, performing their priestly duties, the Pharisees pressed this issue behind, beyond the, the original intention and required everyone to wash before eating. And this became a tradition that came to be regarded as binding as the word of God itself. And so when they saw the disciples not abiding by this tradition, they found it to be objectionable and they registered their complaints with Christ. Now, I would have hated to be one of those guys raising this objection. Because right away, Jesus put them in their place like seating arrangements. He said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he went on in like fashion, essentially telling them that they nullify the word of God for the sake of their traditions. And we should be warned by this as well, right? As we consider our traditions for things like, I don't know, dating. As we consider our traditions concerning things like fellowship or how a worship uh, worship set should sound, right? We don't want our traditions to eclipse the word of God. But after saying these things to the Pharisees, he said this to his disciples and to others around him. He said, hear me, all you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Here, Jesus used the topic of ceremonial defilement to get to the reality of what the ceremony represents. Being defiled ceremonially represented one's moral and spiritual state. And what Jesus goes on to teach is that it isn't necessarily what goes inside of a person that makes him unclean. It's not the hygiene of a person, nor is it the food that he puts in his mouth. It's what comes out of the person that makes him clean. It's what spawns and proceeds from a person that demonstrates his moral and spiritual state. Jesus doesn't teach us that sin comes from within. He also teaches us, or he doesn't just teach us that sin comes from within. He also teaches us that we sin long before it is expressed on the outside. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, this shows that sin doesn't just start in the mind. Sin is committed in the mind. And whether something is expressed outwardly is just a progression of the sin. But the fact of the matter is that every man in this room is an adulterer. And I'm willing to bet every sister in this room is an adulteress as well. And it's not just sexual sin. We've all had cruel thoughts. We've all had envious, judgmental, malicious thoughts. And we can go down the list. But the point that I'm getting at is that the mind is the source of all of our evil. And if the truth is in us, we accept this. Not because we're making peace with our sin, but because this is the reality of our fallen state. We sin on a daily basis. And most of our sins don't find outward expression. Most of our sins are committed in the darkness of our minds. But since the truth is in us, we are able to confess the sins of our minds with full assurance that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from the defiling unrighteousness of our minds. Okay, so we've considered the nature of the mind and the abuse of the mind. Let's move on to the proper use of the mind. The topic that we're considering tonight is the stewardship of the mind. And as we've considered the idea of stewardship, we said that stewardship is the act of managing something or taking care of something. And we saw that this act entails the proper use or the profitable use of a particular asset. As we've considered the asset of our minds, it's important to understand where it's been. In short, Our minds have been damaged by sin, and as a result, it is a restless and wild field that needs constant work and attention. The three considerations that I have for you are not comprehensive, and they will not be given in order of importance. But as I've read through the scriptures, I found these to be helpful in furnishing a person to the proper use of the mind. My first recommendation is that you be discriminant about influence. Be discriminant about influence. Influence is a powerful thing. and It cannot be underestimated. Influence is what shapes the person. Influence is what shapes societies. Influence shapes the world. And so certainly, it will shape your mind. What is influence? What exactly am I referring to? Influence is the effect or the impact on a person's thinking and behavior. And it can come by way of a lot of things, but ultimately it comes down to ideas. We're all influenced by ideas. We're all influenced by thoughts. We're all influenced by concepts and beliefs. And these ideas don't just come to us in one way, right? Sometimes we hear ideas, sometimes we see ideas. Sometimes we may even experience ideas, but one way or another, ideas are what influence our mind and our behavior. But not all ideas are created equal, and this is something that the Apostle Paul was aware of. For him, some ideas were regarded as vain philosophies that take people captive. Other ideas were regarded as arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Some ideas were regarded as preaching that deserved the very curse of God. While on the other hand, some ideas were regarded as the very power of God for salvation to those who believe. Other ideas arose from the very words of God. Ideas that were profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. While other ideas were regard I'm <clears throat> sorry. Not all ideas are created equal. And so Paul told his Christian recipients to be discriminant about what they allowed to influence them. In Romans chapter 12 verse 2, the apostle says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern" What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? As Paul exhorted his recipients concerning Christian living, he first needed to address their pattern of thinking. And so he starts by saying, do not be conformed to this world. This phrase could be translated as no longer be conformed to this age because it gets at the point of what Paul was getting at. Like us, his recipients were a people of their time. And we can assume that they were not only familiar with, but had been influenced by the thinking, the beliefs, and the values of the culture around them. This is what Paul had in mind when he speaks about the world or the age. The world that they lived in was like ours today. It's the same world that God created the same world that man was created to populate and steward. But at the same time, this world was polluted by the thinking, the values, the beliefs, and consequently the behavior of a fallen humanity. And it is in reference to this source of influence that the Christian must be discriminate. Paul tells the Christian to not be conformed or to no longer be conformed. If you've heard a sermon on this passage before, then you've heard that this gets at the idea of of being pressed into a mold. A person conforms when they assume the same form as another, and what it meant in this context was assuming the same thinking, the same values, the same beliefs and behavior as the fallen culture around them. Christians live in a culture that, if gone unchecked, can influence them in one way or another but in respect to the fallen culture, the Christian is called to be a nonconformist. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow we can be completely immune to all cultural influence. It's almost impossible. We're going to be influenced in some way. For instance, the, the culture influences how we dress. The culture influences our slang. The culture influences our taste in music our entertainment choices, and so on. And and, and most influence is really not on the surface. It's subtle. And that's why we got to be discerning. When watching movies or commercials or listening to music, ask yourself, how am I being influenced? What behaviors are being promoted here? What values are, are being held out to me? What am I being told is acceptable and what isn't? Are there subtle messages and attitudes that are subversive to my God and King? Are we being told that promiscuity is okay, for instance? What do what the, the songs tell us about love and relationships? What do these pop-up ads tell us about the ideal form of a woman? And I could go on. But in case i be misunderstood, not everything in the culture is bad. Not everything in culture is something that should be resisted. Yes, there's tears amongst the wheat. There's evil amongst what is good. There's falsehood amongst what is true. But the Christian is called to discernment. And having a discerning mind, the Christian will be able to perceive what the will of God is as he or she navigates through the culture. And this power of discernment comes by way of a renewed mind. That's why Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When Paul speaks about a renewed mind, he's referring to a a renovated way of thinking. And this way of thinking will lead to the transformation that Paul mentions here. A new way of thinking that leads to a change of behavior, habits, and character. How exactly does one renew the mind? This renewal comes by way of thoughts, values, and beliefs that improve the mind. It comes by way of ideas that change the mind for the better. These are the types of influence that the Christian should pursue. And obviously, there is no better source of influence than the scriptures. Scripture is the prime influence for change, they impart beliefs. Convictions, values, ethics, truths about God, truths about ourselves, history, wisdom, purpose, and our destiny. And I could go on. But it would be suffice to say that the scriptures are not just a list of do's and don'ts. The scriptures impart a worldview that fashions a person with the ability to think Christianly. They teach us how to think. They teach us how to process the world around us. They teach us how to evaluate and assess whether it is what, whatever it is that we might encounter. And as we know, the influence of the scriptures can come in many different forms. We could hear the scriptures preached. We can read literature that's based on the scriptures. We can listen to music with scriptural themes and content. But the scripture is not the only influence that can contribute to a renewed mind. Fellowship, relationships with other people who read their Bibles, can also contribute to this renewal. We started our summer series with the stewardship of knowledge. And the main thrust of that message was the call to discipleship. And while we're not all called to meet one another, or meet with other people in a a coffee shop, Reading a Christian book, we are all called to influence others to obey the king of kings. Not everyone is called to stand and preach like I'm doing today. But we're all called to pass on what we know. And if you're a Christian today, you know the Christ. If you're a Christian today, then you follow his teaching. And as you follow him, he expects you to influence others to do the same. Whatever that might look like. Influence, it's how people change, for better or for worse. And understanding how it can impact the mind, we should be selective about what we allow to influence us. My second recommendation is to think and live consistently. Think and live consistently. Consistently. And the point of this recommendation is that there should be consistency between what we know and how we live. The temptation for people like us who go to a Bible church is to binge on biblical knowledge and theological content. And while it's good to continue our education, don't just read and acknowledge, don't just hear and acknowledge. Yes, we are called to grow in the knowledge of God, and and we should never dispense with theological truth, not for peace, not for practicality, not for anything. But the intent of God's word is not so that we can become theological fatheads. The intent was not so that we can be mere hearers of the word. The point is to inform our behavior. God's word is, is, is accomplished, it will be accomplished, if, if it actually comes out in how we live. But God's word will not be accomplished if it just terminates the mind. A mind that merely thinks is a mind poorly stewarded. In his epistle, James tells us that we deceive ourselves if we think that it's sufficient to simply be Informed. Later, he tells us that belief in in the mind is not genuine or effective, if that's all that it is. And the Apostle John tells us that if we claim to know God, such a claim must be tested against the implication of a relationship with God, namely that one keeps his commandments. And if we do not keep the commands of God, then we fail the test, and our claim of knowing God is false. The Bible is filled with the expectation that an informed mind will lead to an informed life. One's thought life is the catalyst or I'm sorry, the catalyst for behavior. Every theological truth is given to influence our will, our emotions, and our actions. In short, the expectation of the Bible is that we think and live consistently. An example of this can be found in Romans chapter 6. Here, Paul put to rest the idea that a Christian can go on sinning for the sake of God's grace. Since the Christian is spiritually united with Christ in his death and resurrection, the Christian is now dead to sin. And what this entails is that we are free from the enslaving power of sin. Though the Christian can and still does sin, the glorious truth is that he or she does not have to. We have a choice now. We can choose God rather than our sin. Before our spiritual union with Christ, we were truly enslaved to sin. Sure, we may not have committed the worst of sins, but we were nevertheless enslaved to sin. And this was demonstrated in the fact that before our conversion, we did not prefer God. We did not love God, nor did we prefer his will for our lives. But after our conversion... This has changed, and we are free from the dominion of sin. Jesus Christ died for our sins, and now he lives to God. And because we are united with Christ, we're told, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This call to consideration has obvious implications for life and practice. If it is true that we are dead to sin and alive to God, it should be realized in our daily struggles with sin. And so, we should be, this should be our consideration that we take with us as we go into the workplace, where the curse frustrates our efforts and where we encounter some of the hardest interactions that we have with our fellow man. This should be our consideration as we settle into the privacy of our rooms The scene where much of our sinning has occurred in the dark. When we're tempted, we can actually choose to please God. This is just one example of what it looks like to think and live consistently. But for the sake of time, we'll move on. The last consideration that I want to leave with you is this maintain a biblical perspective. Maintain a biblical perspective. The Bible furnishes the mind with an outlook on life. And this outlook enables us to perceive the realities of life in a proper light. One area where the Bible gives perspective is in the area of trials. At one time, James wrote to a group of Christians facing various trials. And as a way to help them through it, he wrote this. James chapter 1, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. On the face of it, this is an odd charge, right? It's like, how can I think of a trial as an occasion for joy? Right? Trials disrupt my joy. How, can I suppo- how, how, how am I supposed to be happy in a time like this? But this is where the biblical perspective comes in. You see, the Christian is told that each trial, each difficulty, each occasion of suffering has the ultimate purpose of bringing about their maturity and this maturity comes by way of tested faith that perseveres through the various trials of life this is the perspective that we're given and what we can glean from this is that no trials are that no trial is without purpose sometimes the most frustrating thing about a trial is not understanding the why behind it why did the toilet clog at my girlfriend's parents house right Why did I get that flat tire in the rental? Why am I still not married? Why did I get COVID? And if we're not careful, we might experience these things and attribute malicious motives in the mind of God. Perhaps God is mad at me. Perhaps God doesn't care about me. Perhaps God, even worse, Is cruel, and he gets some sort of joy out of watching me writhe in this pain. But here, the Bible offers perspective that dispels any of those speculations. If you're a child of God, each trial has a good purpose in your life. We read stories or watch movies about people who grow in character and learn valuable lessons as a result of going through some form of conflict or trial. It's the typical structure of pretty much every narrative that we're exposed to. Some writers know this as the hero's journey. A character goes through a series of trials, and in most cases, after making it through that trial, they're better off than they were before. The Christian life is a lot like the hero's journey. God is the author, and we are his character's. And in his story, we're called to adventure through various inconveniences, challenges, and trials. And it is through the adventure that our character develops and grows. But unlike fictional characters, we have knowledge of the plot. We know the general direction that this story is taking. He, the author, causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is that those who are foreknown by God will be conformed to the image of Christ as they were predestined to be. As Christians, this is the hermeneutic through which we ought to read all of the events of our lives. This is the perspective that God has provided for our minds. And if we use our minds properly, this perspective will aid us in times of difficulty. the Bible also provides perspective in times of conflict. While the Apostle Paul had multiple reasons for writing his letter to the Philippians, it seems as though one reason was to address a conflict that was going on between two prominent sisters in the church. For whatever reason, Euodia and Syntyche had some static between them. And Paul took it upon himself to address this indirectly in the second chapter of his letter. He did this by encouraging the whole church to pursue unity. And in the pursuit of unity, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the face of conflict, the apostle urged his readers to regard or to view others as being more important than themselves. They were called, they were not called, to false humility. They were called to a genuine esteem of another as having more importance. Than themselves. And again, it isn't fake or hypocritical. It's a true exercise of the mind. In the mind, we're called to put others before ourselves. And in so doing, we're enabled to consider the interests of others rather than just looking for ourselves. This was the mentality that they were called to make and they were called to take on a mentality of humility, a mentality of selflessness and genuine concern for the other party. This mentality exemplified the mind of Christ who humbled himself from realms of glory to become a sin offering for us. This is the perspective that the Bible provides for us to take on as we face conflicts with others. And given that we all differ from one another in various ways, conflicts are inevitable. But if we take on the perspective provided for us, We can grow in unity together and become more like Christ in the process. The last thing I want to point out is the perspective for mission. If you guys have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Put your finger at verse 18. Now, let's certainly hope at this point this isn't the first time you're opening your Bibles. Just kidding. All right, verse 18. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop. Typically, we read to the end verse 20 without giving what Jesus just said a second thought. This is a powerful thing and it deserves some consideration. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. What are the implications of this? First, Jesus is the highest authority in the land. And because this is the case, Every other authority ultimately has to answer to him. Now, obviously, that isn't consciously the case by and large. Many people exercise their authority as if there isn't a God above them. And they do that to their own detriment because they will be held accountable. But I dare say that it is not only the church's responsibility but an act of mercy to make our rulers aware of the fact that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance by raising this man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Secondly, because Jesus is the highest authority in the land, we don't have to answer to anyone when it comes to his commands. We don't need permission to disciple the nations. We have the commands of Christ. And since this is the case, we should do this without timidity or fear. Now, I know, obviously, we still struggle with that. But this is because we are often of little faith. But the fact of the matter is is that we can carry out the commands of Christ with boldness because we have a charge from the highest authority in the land. And lastly, because I don't know everybody in this room, because Jesus is the highest authority in the land, he has the right to call all people to change their mind. If by any chance there's a non Christian in this room, and I I don't know everybody here, this is specifically for you. This Jesus that we speak about is the King of Kings. And he has taken his seat on his eternal throne. Years ago, he came to earth in human form in order to represent us. And while here, he lived a perfect life that we could never live. And for us, he was executed for all the cosmic violations that we've committed. And three days after his execution, he was raised from the dead. And shortly after that, he ascended to heaven where he is now seated on his eternal throne. And from there, he commands all people to repent, to change their minds about him and about their deviance from him. Instead, he commands all people to call on him for salvation. And the guarantee that he gives is that anyone who believes in him will be saved. These are just a few recommendations for how we can steward our mind properly. And obviously there are many other ways that we can do this. But coming back to what we said at the beginning, stewardship is an act of managing something or taking care of something. This act entails the proper use or the profitable use of a particular asset. And if we're gonna use anything properly, if we're gonna use anything in a profitable way, we need to know what the purpose of that particular thing is. And if you don't remember anything that I said throughout this whole message tonight, I want you to get this. We should steward our minds to please God. We should steward our minds to please God. As we concluded in our first point, God has created our minds to know, to understand, and to choose to do his will. And when it comes to the will of God, this quote from Jesus is fitting John 13, 17. If you know these things, if we know the will of God, blessed are you if you do them. Join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, everything that you say to us is addressed to our mind. God, you want us to love you with all of our mind. God, we ask you would help us, help us to be renewed in our minds, help us to be devoted to you in our minds, help us to be aware of you. God, we ask that you would take what was said tonight and uh, that you would uh, use it to accomplish whatever purpose that you have. Thank you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.